0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories that you might have missed. Stories like these. After a productive day at the bargaining table, I'm pleased to report that the Chicago Teachers Union House of Delegates voted to end their work stoppage.
1: Ultimately, I'm very proud of the fact that the members of the Chicago Teachers Union took a stand around this. Employees at the School of the Art Institute voted to unionize
0: today, and this comes one day after workers at the Art Institute also voted to form a union. It's the first major museum union in Chicago and will represent more than 200 Art Institute employees. Including installers, curators, custodians, librarians, and retail workers. With us for those stories and more, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington and Heather Sharon, political reporter for WTTW News. We'll hear from Laura in just a moment, but Heather, let's start with a story that's on everyone's minds this week: the standoff between Mayor Lightfoot and the Teachers Union. Students are now back in person after five days of canceled classes. What's the latest?
2: Well, kids are back in school, although you guys did a great job breaking down the fact that some students don't think it's safe for them to be back in school, despite the agreement between the teachers union and the school district. The issue I think now will really turn to whether or not the guidelines set out in that agreement, which cover everything from um, high quality masks, additional testing resources, as well as setting metrics to flip schools where there. are are a high number of COVID-19 related absences um, to remote, whether those are enforced or whether um, it whether, you know, things fall through the cracks. And, of course, at the same time, we're all watching the daily case counts and hospitalizations regarding COVID um, because it's possible that maybe we have begun to turn a corner and things will get a little bit easier. It's just too soon to tell sort of what will happen and, of course, what that impact will have on the schools.
0: I want to hear some reaction now from CTU President Jesse Sharkey and Mayor Lightfoot.
1: We're we're gonna keep doing what's right as we go forward in the city. Um, You know, it was not an agreement that had everything, it's not a perfect agreement, um, but it's something that we we can hold our heads up about, um, partly because it was so difficult to get.
0: No one wins when our students are out of the place where they can learn the best and where they're safest. After being out of school for four days in a row, I'm sure many students will be excited to get back into the classroom with their teachers and peers and their parents and guardians can now breathe a much-deserved sigh of relief. Laura, CPS school closures made national headlines. So what are your thoughts on how the mayor and the union handled the whole situation?
1: Well, I think, unfortunately, it was a continuation of the the, the bad blood and the tensions that have existed between the mayor and the union since uh, early in her, her term. This is the third time that uh they've had a major conflict that has affected uh, education it's just either suspended education closed shut down in schools entirely or, or had a huge impact on on the continuation of education in schools so it's it's unfortunate and i think that the bad blood is going to continue you can see that in some of the responses that the ctu leadership has made even after the fact and the fact that uh, the that the ctu membership the 25,000 members had voted to to agree to go back The vote was so close, I think it was 56 percent voted in favor of it. So I think there's going to continue to be some unhappiness. You mentioned the national aspect of that, and I think that's important to to recall because Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and his education department weighed in uh, very strongly saying in general, but um, in particular in Chicago, they wanted to see kids in the classrooms, and they made that very clear. They made that clear to the national teachers union. And I think that that message uh, filtered down to Chicago. And I think that's one reason why the CTU uh, leadership decided to come to an agreement, even though they were not completely happy with the terms of the agreement.
0: Well, speaking of the terms, Heather, break it down for us. What's the deal between CPS and the union and what was left on the bargaining table?
2: Well, there was quite a bit left on the bargaining table. And we heard uh, President Jesse Sharkey just then sort of acknowledge that, that essentially the agreement is not great, but it is better than nothing. And they really laid it at the mayor's footsteps for being forced to take these additional actions, which union leaders have been asking for since before the start of the school. So as I said before, there's going to be a concerted effort to uh, sign students up to get tested. Uh, Originally, the union wanted every student to have to be tested unless their parents opted them out of the testing. Instead, the program remains an opt-in program. And we have seen very low numbers of students signing up for that. So there will be an effort to improve those opt-in numbers. And it also, for the first time, sets specific measures, like I said, to flip schools to remote. And the union said that was critical, but what they also wanted and didn't get was a citywide metric to turn all schools remote. And the mayor would not budge on that. And uh, by comparison, the safety agreement that they negotiated back in February 2021 Mm -hmm. established such a citywide metric. So essentially that if the the percent positivity was over 15 percent that all schools would flip to remote and it was not lost on any member of the union's negotiating team that the current average was above 20 percent during much of the the work stoppage and remains above 15 percent as of the latest data updated Thursday afternoon. So that those were a couple of the issues that remain.
0: Are the uh, teachers going to be paid for their work during that time?
2: Well, that is a good question. Um, The mayor said that she would leave it to school CEO Pedro Martinez to make that decision, also yet to be determined as to whether or not students will have to make up the five days of school. And I imagine that if students are required to make up those five days of school, teachers would be paid for those five days. Um, We just don't know which way it's going to shake out but I am reminded of a, a attempt by former mayor Rahm Emanuel to sort of play this game a little bit when there was a strike back in 2012. Eventually, the teachers did get paid for every day they were out on strike. However... During the 2019 strike, uh, Mayor Lightfoot refused to pay teachers for all of the days that mm. they were out on strike, and that remains a very sore spot for many union members.
1: So this could go I, I, I either not. way. I would also point out that uh, the mayor has been saying consistently on this ground that this was not really a strike, and the, the, the action that the CTU took and the refusal to work was illegal, and they, and, and in fact, the Lightfoot administration filed a, a charge against them for that. So her position might be this was an illegal walkout, and so therefore we don't have to pay you.
0: Very true. It seems unlikely. Um, Laura, let's keep talking here, but, but about the miscommunication of this whole thing. There were communication issues that we saw during the standoff. Uh, many parents, including myself, we got mixed messages about school closures and, and remote learning options.
1: Right, right. At the beginning of the walkout, at the beginning of the stoppage, uh, CPS officials as I understand, it told parents that if you wanted to send your kid to school, if you wanted your child to be in school, that they would accommodate that. And actually, that wasn't something that they were prepared, as it turned out, to do. They they just didn't have enough people in the buildings. They didn't have a, staffing numbers were down, not just in terms of teachers, but among other staff that they hoped would fill the gap. That the teachers since the teachers weren't going to be there, and that did not come to reality. So in fact parents were being told one thing, and in fact, uh, something else was happening. And and then every day, it seemed like practically every day, as, a, as the stops continue, there was uncertainty about when there would be a decision or when there would be an announcement about the, whether there'd be school tomorrow. So. Parents were left hanging one night, one night until I think close to eleven o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So it, it created a lot of confusion a little, and I think just deepened the frustration that parents have been feeling about how schools have been handling this this since the COVID crisis. Yeah, that yeah.
0: late night. I just went to sleep, Laura and I. <laughs> I got the update the next morning. I said, I, can, I can't wait. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not doing this. Well, yeah. Heather, what else are we hearing from parents? And you mentioned this earlier, uh, but talk more about the student position here.
2: Yeah, I know that all of my colleagues do their best, as do I we often cover this as a a union versus the mayor or the mayor versus the union. And of course, there are nearly 330,000 students in Chicago public schools who have their lives and daily schedules just upended. It's hard enough to know sort of what Chicago thinks about an issue. It is particularly hard to gauge, you know, how students are feeling. And there's certainly a range of opinions because there are, are some students who worry deeply about being exposed to COVID getting sick themselves or bringing the virus home and infecting their perhaps older relatives or perhaps relatives who have conditions that make their immune system less effective at fighting viruses like this. So that's a concern. Um, But there are, of course, other students who struggle deeply with remote learning, which was, of course, in place for parts of the last two school years, in fact. And there are other students who just want it to be normal. And, you know, we just aren't there Yet, and it's really difficult to know sort of what the long-term impact of all of this chaos will be because you know whatever side you're on, there's no doubt that it was chaotic. You know, you yourself, you know, yes. were like, I can't wait until eleven thirty and no way, this out. I can't deal <laughs> with this, and I think that that. Has a cost in and of itself that sort of chaos, which is, you know, why I think you've seen some parents think, well, okay, um, maybe Chicago public schools isn't the place for my child. Maybe I want to think about the Catholic school system. Maybe I want to look at moving out of Chicago entirely. And at a time when the city's population is sort of really suffering from significant declines, um, I think that all sort of comes to as part of a larger conversation about, you know, who Chicago works for, how its residents are served and whether they're served in a way that makes it possible to raise a family here. And those are really deep questions that um, are certainly informed by what happened during the past week, but um, will, you know, be the subject of at least my reporting going forward for the foreseeable future.
0: Laura, one issue that's come up is COVID funding, right? The city received nearly $4 billion from the federal government to uh, recover from the pandemic. But some activists are saying that not enough of it is being spent to help schools fight the spread of the virus. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think there's been a lot of confusion about how how that money, there's there's been hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, the city of Chicago and and CPS got nearly $4 billion from the federal government in pandemic recovery money. Now, that's going to be distributed over a period of several years, but there are some community activists and, and advocacy groups that claim that there's not been enough transparency about how that money should be spent and specifically in terms of you know providing masks, providing tests in CPS, they're wondering why, um, if there's so much money available and that money was specifically earmarked for pandemic relief, why there's, there, there are these shortages of tests and these shortages of masks, et cetera, and other resources. The Life Administration says that they are spending the money appropriately. One of the charges that has been made is that she may be playing a shell game and moving money around so that she can use some of it toward pension relief, mm-hmm. relief, and toward uh, other financial relief. And she and her administration says that that is not the case. But there's some questions out there about it.
0: Yeah, how have they been spending their federal COVID relief money,
1: Heather? Well, it's been a series of things. I think that there there has been a tremendous number of dollars that have been spent on. On, on after school programs, uh, programs since the pandemic has had such a deep effect on, on keeping kids out of the classroom or keeping them, uh, not as resource as they should be in the classroom. There's been, uh, social youth programs. There's been after school programs and other initiatives. There's been anti-violence money, over $100 million in anti-violence money that's come out of the pandemic. I think that the Life Administration can make the case that they are spending lots of dollars on city relief, but, uh, perhaps uh, some people say that there's just not enough transparency to that.
0: Question for you Heather, what to what extent could this friction between the teachers union and, and CPS play out in the twenty twenty three mayors race?
2: There is no doubt that it will have a significant impact on that race. And I've been on this show enough times, Sasha, that you know that I, I'm not one to make crystal ball predictions, but I feel confident in saying that schools will be a major issue. And there is no doubt that the Chicago Teachers Union will look to endorse a rival or a challenger to Mayor Lori But if she does seek a second term. And whether that will be Union Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates has yet to be decided. We asked Stacey Davis-Gates if she planned to run for mayor. She said she was focused on leading the union and parenting her young children in this crazy so COVID surge. Yeah. But there is no doubt that the teachers union um, wants there to be a different mayor. And Stacey Davis-Gates said it clearly. She said Mayor Lori Lightfoot was unfit to leave the city because of what happened between the schools and the union. Mm-hmm. So there is no doubt that will be a uh, major issue.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up the CTU vice president. Uh, Laura, she said, quote, This mayor is unfit to lead our city. She's a one-woman kamikaze mission to destroy our public schools. Harsh words. How important, Laura, is that relationship between the mayor's office and and the union?
1: Of of course, it's very important. And 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 as you recall, there was a very difficult and challenging, intense relationship between the CTU when Karen Lewis was leading it, the late Karen Lewis, and when Rahm Emanuel was mayor. You know, toward the end of, of, of the period when they were in those leadership positions, they did come to be able to work together, and, and but there were a lot of harsh words passed around, so that's nothing new. And, of course, as Heather points out, the CTU has no problem getting involved in, in Chicago politics and mayoral politics, and in the election that, that brought Lori Lightfoot to City Hall, uh, the CTU uh, is supported uh, Cook County Board President Tony Freckwinkle in that battle. So, as Heather says, it's, it's very likely that they are going to step up again, and mm-hmm. in these harsh words that you're hearing from Stacey Davis case are just an indication of that.
0: Well, speaking of unions, I want to touch on something here. This week, employees at the Art Institute of Chicago and the School of Art Institute, they voted to unionize. They're seeking higher wages and better working conditions. What do you think about that news, Laura?
1: It's interesting. The Art Institute would be the first uh, major cultural institution museum in Chicago to unionize. It's something that is not... Been happening here, although it's a trend that is happening in other parts of the country. New York has several museums and cultural institutions that have that have moved toward unionization. I think part of it is that we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a of a crisis that has deeply affected people's uh, workplaces, their views about their workplaces, and and has made many workers feel that they are underappreciated. And so, I think that. That is bubbled up, and and is the reason why you're seeing this uh, development. Now, this is something that didn't happen overnight, but it's something that's that's developed. Where, and it's going to be not just the art institute that's going to unionize, but it's going to be the school of the art institute. I'll be watching this because I won't be surprised to see other museums and perhaps MSI, perhaps the Field Museum, this, this shit, uh, this, yeah. the shit following their footsteps. I think that's I think it's a trend that's going to continue.
0: That's Laura Washington of The Sun Times and ABC 7 and WTTW's Heather Sharone. And don't go away, there's plenty more where that came from including these stories. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has tested positive for COVID-19.
2: The diagnosis comes just a day after a deal was struck with CPS teachers who are concerned about the safety of in-person learning.
1: Mayor Lightfoot today appointed the first executive director to a new community commission, and the move remains controversial. That role is designed to play a role in policing police and in hiring and firing police superintendents.
2: Meanwhile, we're 10 days into the new vaccine mandate rules for many indoor businesses in Chicago and Cook County county. The county has yet to cite a single business for violating the rules.
0: So back to you, Heather, let's pivot to COVID-19 in our region. Where do we stand on case numbers? Has the Omicron surge peaked
2: yet? Well, they are soaring and they remain at the highest point certainly since the winter of 2021 and perhaps even higher than the first wave of the pandemic, but but it's hard to compare because there was so little testing available back when the pandemic first hit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the way I've been thinking about it is that because so many people are vaccinated and we know that the Omicron variant of COVID-19 can infect fully vaccinated people, I've been keeping a very close eye on hospitalizations and hospitalizations are just soaring. We heard from Illinois Department of Public Health Director Dr. Ngozi Ezeke this week who said that previous record had been, quote, smashed and that the state government was actually executing contracts it had to bring in emergency healthcare workers to help hospitals withstand that surge. And the need is particularly acute in the northwest corner of the state surrounding Rockford, where there are just about 5% of intensive care beds available, which is very, very low. Typically, you want to have something like 20% of intensive care beds open to ensure that people who get in car crashes and have heart attacks can get the necessary care. I don't know that we can tell a whole lot from case counts because people if are vaccinated more are likely to have a cold but for the unvaccinated they are are likely to end up in the hospital and we are seeing that reflected in the data and it is still a very tenuous situation even as we appear perhaps maybe insert all of the caveats possible to have passed the peak of the Omicronic variant. Um, cases have been dropping for a few days now, um, and perhaps hospitalizations are flattening still at a very high level. So there's certainly reason to be optimistic at this point, but it is still a very, very dire situation in H- Illinois' hospitals, mm-hmm. and no one should rest easy about that.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, Illinois' public health director, Heather, but let's hear the full clip from Dr. Ngazi Azike.
1: We have never had this many COVID patients in the hospital at any point in the pandemic, not uh, in spring of 2020, not in the winter uh, of 2020. This is the absolute uh, highest number, and and not just by a couple. Uh, Our previous totals uh, have been smashed.
0: Laura, it feels like right now the question is, who hasn't gotten COVID?
1: That's sort of the conventional wisdom. If you haven't gotten it by now, you're very likely to Uh, the Omicron variant is just so extremely contagious. And another number that Dr. Ezekiel pointed out is that the vast majority of those those patients are unvaccinated. 80, I think the figure she gave is 80. percent So this is a very preventable uh, situation, and it's, and that makes it even even more distressing, particularly for healthcare workers. Who are in the positions, and have been in the positions, for going on, going into a third year? Mm-hmm. They have to treat people and to have to have, have to respond to people who were brought of them, you know, sick because they did not take the precautions of the vaccinations. And I, I think you're seeing that particularly down, more downstate than than in northern Illinois because there is there is a, a, a sentiment particularly downstate. Uh, more of a sentiment against vaccination. But, of course, there's parts of the city where that's a problem as well. Mm -hmm.
0: And as we know, Laura, uh, the mayor tested positive for COVID this week. So what did she have to say about that?
1: Well, she didn't have much to say, which is pretty typical with elected officials. The thing that I think is important is that there's a lot of transparency around this you know, if someone contracts COVID, you know, personally they have no obligation to report that. But because they're they're elected officials, because of they're public figures, there's an expectation they will. So she reported it, made a statement saying that she was resting, that she didn't have any severe symptoms, and in which she would isolate as as the CDC would recommend. Um, but it was it, it was a huge statement, and particularly as it was pointed out, came right after the uh, the day after the settlement with the CTU, uh, the the, day, the evening before she had been at a press conference with mm-hmm. other. CPS officials and and with the media and she did take off her mask when she was speaking that raises questions about you know who she may have exposed who who may have exposed her it makes a statement that it's not safe out there Uh, you know she was assuring the CTU that schools were safe but she's the mayor of the city of Chicago and she's in a position to be able to take a lot of precautions and 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 avoid uh, unnecessary exposure and she got COVID.
0: Uh, President Biden announced yesterday that a thousand military personnel are being sent to hospitals across the country to help with the Omicron surge. Meanwhile, Governor Pritzker is sending more than 2,000 healthcare workers to hospitals to help care for those who are sick. What prompted that move, Heather?
2: Well, it, it's really that ICU capacity that I talked about a little bit earlier. That is what um, is really alarming uh, state officials. And it is a distinct change from where we were in the, the early days of the pandemic, if we can remember that far back. But of course, McCormick Place was converted into a field hospital so that there would be enough beds. Now, ultimately, that field hospital was never used in any significant way by, um, to help relieve the pressure at hospitals because we were able to flatten the curve back then. Um, There are no plans to reopen field hospitals now, despite the record-breaking surge, because the issue is not beds, it is staff. So because this variant of COVID-19 is more transmissible, healthcare workers are getting sick. So they have to quarantine or, or isolate for at least five days. And that has made it impossible to have enough staff to take care of everybody who's sick. It also comes at the end of a year and a half that has just been incredibly hard for healthcare workers in any part of the healthcare industry. They are tired. They are burned out. Mm -hmm. They are frustrated that people have not been fully vaccinated and that in, in many significant sense, we are in a worse place Almost a year after vaccines were available for healthcare workers, um, than we were a year ago, and that I think has prompted a lot of people to, you know, quit their jobs, look for something that's less incredibly difficult. Yeah. And that is why the state is in such a, a precarious position right now.
0: Yeah. One medical uh, professional last week on reset told me he felt beat up. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, the state also recently changed its COVID rules and its isolation guidelines for schools to reflect those CDC guidelines. So given all the testing issues, Laura, do you think that was the right call?
1: Sure. Well, it, it certainly isn't reliable if, if, there's, if there's a lack of availability of tests, and, and we have seen that that has been a big problem. The governor announced a few days ago that he was going to that he had. To hit, got Abbott Labs to agree to provide 350,000 masks to students in the schools. But, and, 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 but there's just a question about whether or not there are going to be enough tests to allow people to make those judgments about the five days or the ten days. And there, there are some health experts that are raising a question about whether or not we're pushing too hard to get people back at the workplace and, and get them back into school. And maybe five days are not enough.
0: Laura let's talk about the vaccine mandate Now. folks have to show their vaccination card to enter restaurants and gyms and bars. but it sounds like it's going a lot smoother for some places than others
1: yeah it's really been a mixed bag um my sense is there's been some reports that show that uh, in the communities where maybe there's more vac- vaccine resistance, where vaccination rates are lower, ironically, are the place where restaurants are having a harder time getting customers to cooperate, some restaurants are saying that they're just going, they move from uh, service in-house to just doing carry out because it's, just, it's easier to, to deal with. And, but other restaurants are saying that their sales are up because restaurants, particularly in areas where maybe there's higher vaccination rates, where feel comfortable, and more confident about going into restaurants, the city has says they're going to crack down on restaurants that are not complying, and they have issued some citations, to I think something like 10 restaurants, mm-hmm. but the reality is that that you just cannot uh, watchdog this you would be able to in a city this large. I've been out to several restaurants, I would say four or five restaurants in the last week, and, that, and half of them uh, were not requiring proof of vaccination. They weren't even, it didn't even come up. Really? So, yeah, oh, yeah and most of those were obviously all of those were local ma on top not chain restaurants i think you'll see that the corporate owned bigger shops are going to be much more likely to comply but some of the neighborhood places are just sort of winking and nodding and and because they they know how difficult it's going to be to get people to comply and they don't want to lose business
0: let's switch gears i want to talk about another story uh, chicago's first civilian led police oversight committee they're finally getting off the ground Heather, can you tell us about the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability?
2: Right. Well, this is really the culmination of a fight that lasted nearly five years and is really the last major reform that was recommended in the wake of the police murder of Laquan McDonald. The idea is to rebuild Chicagoans' trust in the Chicago Police Department. Regular Chicagoans without expertise in law enforcement or the legal system should be in charge of overseeing the police department. And after a lot of negotiation and a lot of back and forth, there's finally a structure in place to make that happen and this week Mayor Lori Lightfoot named the first executive director of that agency and that will be Adam Gross who was really intimately involved in proposing this structure and sort of helping negotiate it through a really intense debate over whether it would have the desired effect and and improve police community relations or whether it would just create another layer of bureaucracy that would do nothing But waste taxpayer money and make police officers job even harder to do, you know, with a little bit of delay. The city council vote was was nearly six months ago. Things are finally up off the ground. And now people can apply to serve on this board. Mm -hmm. And it will be an interesting experiment to see a body like this, whether in a big city like Chicago, it can have a meaningful impact on police reform, which, of course, has proceeded in fits and starts for, I think, as long as most people who have covered this issue you can remember. Right. Uh, Laura, let's let's
0: pick up where Heather just left off. I mean, police reform advocates have been pushing for community oversight for years. How is this significant right now?
1: Well, it's significant in first I should say that this is something that Lori Lifewood advocated when she ran for office, and but then she pulled back from this, and I think partly because there was a lot of resistance coming from the police rank and file to this, but so she kind of had to be drag kicking and screaming into this agreement to move ahead with this commission, and it's the telling thing is that some of her uh, most vocal critics. are are, are happy with this appointment of Adam Gross. They've worked, some of the members of city council, more progressive members who worked very hard with Adam Gross in, in negotiating this agreement are very happy with the outcome. I think the proof is going to be in the pudding. This is a 14, uh, I think uh, Mr. Gross is going to be overseeing 14 staff members that are going to run the commission, and there's going to be a a number, there there are going to be community councils that are going to be appointed that are going to be meeting on a regular basis, and they're going to help inform the commission on issues related to police accountability. Uh, This this commission will have uh, a say-so in terms of recommending future police superintendents and and also in, anything related to a police accountability so there's going to be a lot of power in this commission and, and if it's run right it can really make a difference in terms of police reform
0: well before i let you go uh, you know any other stories that'll be on your radar for the coming week i'll start with you heather i know you talked about following that COVID search
2: Right. Going to keep a close eye on that those COVID numbers. And next week, there is another hearing scheduled in the ongoing, very acrimonious debate over the ward, next ward map for the city of Chicago based on the 2020 census. So there will be another chance for Alder people to find their way a little bit closer to a compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, we will have to see if that's possible. There is very little room for negotiation. And Both sides are pretty dug in between the Black Caucus and the Latino Caucus on the city council.
0: And what are you watching, Laura?
1: Well, Chicago politics and Illinois politics are starting to gear up. Uh, We saw petitions for the uh, June 28th primaries, uh, petitions to get on the ballots uh, start to roll out this week. And next week, we're expecting a big announcement. Reportedly, uh, the billionaire Ken Griffin, who has declared war on the other billionaire in Illinois, uh, J.B. Prisker, the governor, he's found determined to front a challenger to J.B. Prisker in the election and uh, also to, to maybe perhaps roll out a slate of other Republican people who can run in the primary and in the fall. Mm-hmm. We're expecting some announcements next week, and at the top of that list would be Richard Irvin, who is expected to be declaring to run uh, for governor, Richard Irvin, who is currently the mayor of Aurora. So there's going to be a lot happening in terms of shaping the, uh, the slate, the Republican slate for the primary elections. And yeah, you're going to see a lot of names coming up next week.
0: Well, that's it for the Weekly News Recap. I want to thank Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington and Heather Sharon, political reporter for WTTW News. That's it for the Weekly News Recap. The pandemic is causing a lot of political battles with our schools, police and even restaurant owners. To stay on top of it all, make sure you hit the subscribe button for this podcast. Then take a few seconds to give us a rating and a review. Doing that helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and come back soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.